0: chapter 2 of companionable books by henry van dyke this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Marianne. chapter 2 poetry in the psalms there are three ways in which we may read the bible we may come to it as the divinely inspired rule of faith and conduct this is the point of view from which it appears most precious to religion it gives us the word of god to teach us what to believe and how to live We may consider it as a collection of historical books written under certain conditions and reflecting in their contents and in their language the circumstances in which they were produced this is the aspect in which criticism regards the bible and its intellectual interest as well as its religious value is greatly enhanced by a clear vision of the truth about it from this point of view we may study it also as literature we may see in it a noble and impassioned interpretation of nature and life uttered in language of beauty and sublimity, touched with the vivid colors of human personality, and embodied in forms of enduring literary art. None of these three ways of studying the Bible is hostile to the others. On the contrary, they are helpful to one another because each of them gives us knowledge of a real factor in the marvelous influence of the Bible in the world. The true lover of the Bible has an interest in all the elements of its life as an immortal book. He wishes to discern and rightly to appreciate the method of its history the spirit of its philosophy the significance of its fiction the power of its eloquence and the charm of its poetry he wishes this all the more because he finds in it something which is not in any other book a vision of god as hope for man and an inspiration to righteousness which seems to him divine as the worshipper in the temple would observe the art and structure of the carven beams of cedar and the lily-work on the tops of the pillars, the more attentively, because they beautified the house of his God, so the man who has a religious faith in the Bible will study more eagerly and carefully the literary forms of the book, in which the Holy Spirit speaks forever. It is in this spirit that I wish to consider the poetical element of the Psalms. The comfort, help, and guidance that they bring to our spiritual life will not be diminished, but increased by a perception of their exquisite form and finish. If a king sent a golden cup full of cheering cordial to a weary man, he might well admire the twofold bounty of the royal gift. The beauty of the vessel would make the draught more grateful and refreshing, and if the cup were inexhaustible, if it filled itself anew as often as it touched the lips, then the very shape and adornment of it would become significant and precious. It would be an inestimable possession, a singing goblet, a treasure of life. John Milton whose faith in religion was as exalted as his mastery of the art of poetry was perfect has expressed in a single sentence the spirit in which i would approach the poetic study of the book of psalms not in their divine arguments alone but in the very critical art of composition the psalms may be easily made to appear over all kinds of lyric poetry incomparable One. Let us remember at the outset that a considerable part of the value of the psalms as poetry will lie beyond our reach. We cannot precisely measure it, nor give it full appreciation, simply because we are dealing with the psalms only as we have them in our English Bible. This is a real drawback, and it is well to understand clearly the two things that we lose in reading the psalms in this way. First, we lose the beauty and charm of verse. This is a serious loss. Poetry and verse are not the same thing, but they are so intimately related that it is difficult to divide them. Indeed, according to certain definitions of poetry, it would seem almost impossible. Yet who will deny that the psalms as we have them in the English Bible are really and truly poetical? The only way out of this difficulty that I can see is to distinguish between verse as the formal element and imaginative emotion as the essential element in poetry in the original production of a poem it seems to me it is just to say that the embodiment in metrical language is a law of art which must be observed but in the translation of a poem which is a kind of reflection of it in a mirror the verse may be lost without altogether losing the spirit of the poem take an illustration from another art a statue has the symmetry of solid form you can look at it from all sides and from every side you can see the balance and rhythm of the parts in a photograph this solidity of form disappears you see only a flat surface but you still recognize it as the reflection of a statue the psalms were undoubtedly written in the original hebrew according to a system of versification and perhaps to some extent with forms of rhyme the older scholars like louth and herder held that such a system existed but could not be recovered later scholars like ewald evolved a system of their own modern scholarship represented by such authors as professors cheney and briggs is reconstructing and explaining more accurately the hebrew versification but for the present at least the only thing that is clear is that this system must remain obscure to us it cannot be reproduced in english the metrical versions of the psalms are the least satisfactory. The poet Cowley said of them, They are so far from doing justice to David that methinks they revile him worse than Shemai. We must learn to appreciate the poetry in the psalms without the aid of those symmetries of form and sound in which they first appeared. This is a serious loss. Poetry without verse is like a bride without a bridal garment. The second thing that we lose in reading the Psalms in English is something even more important. It is the heavy tax on the wealth of its meaning which all poetry must pay when it is imported from one country to another through the medium of translation. The most subtle charm of poetry is its suggestiveness, and much of this comes from the magical power which words acquire over memory and imagination from their associations this intimate and personal charm must be left behind when a poem passes from one language to another the accompaniment the harmony of things remembered and beloved which the very words of the song once awakened is now silent nothing remains but the naked melody of thought if this is pure and strong it will gather new associations as indeed the psalms have already done in english so that their familiar expressions have become charged with musical potency And yet i suppose such phrases as a tree planted by the rivers of water a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of the house the mountains round about jerusalem can never bring to us the full sense of beauty the enlargement of the heart that they gave to the ancient hebrews but in spite of this double loss in the passage from verse to prose and from hebrew to english the poetry in the psalms is so real and vital and imperishable that every reader feels its beauty and power it retains one valuable element of poetic form this is that balancing of the parts of a sentence one against another to which bishop Louth first gave the familiar name of parallelism the effect of this simple artifice learned from nature herself is singularly pleasant and powerful it is the rise and fall of the fountain the ebb and flow of the tide the tone and overtone of the chiming bell The twofold utterance seems to bear the thought onward like the wings of a bird. A german writer compares it very exquisitely to the heaving and sinking of the troubled heart. It is this parallelism which gives such familiar charm to the language of the psalms. Unconsciously and without recognizing the nature of the attraction, we grow used to the double cadence, the sound and the echo, and learn to look for its recurrence with delight. O come let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms if we should want a plain english name for this method of composition we might call it thought rhyme it is easy to find varied illustrations of its beauty and of its power to emphasize large and simple ideas take for instance that very perfect psalm with which the book begins a poem so complete so compact so delicately wrought that it seems like a sonnet the subject is the two paths the first part describes the way of the good man it has three divisions the first verse gives a description of his conduct by negatives telling us what he does not do there is a triple thought rhyme here blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly nor standeth in the way of sinners nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful The second verse describes his character positively with a double thought rhyme. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. The third verse tells us the result of this character and conduct in a fourfold thought rhyme. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The second part of the psalm describes the way of the evil man. In the fourth verse there is a double thought rhyme. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. In the fifth verse the consequences of this worthless, fruitless, unrooted life are shown, again with a double cadence of thought, the first referring to the judgment of God, the second to the judgment of men. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The third part of the psalm is a terse powerful couplet giving the reason for the different ending of the two paths for the lord knoweth the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish the thought rhyme here is one of contrast a poem of very different character from this brief serious impersonal sonnet is found in the forty-sixth psalm which might be called a national anthem here again the poem is divided into three parts the first part verses first to third, expresses a sense of joyful confidence in the eternal amid the tempests and confusions of earth. The thought rhymes are in couplets, and the second phrase, in each case, emphasizes and enlarges the idea of the first phrase, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The second part, verses fourth to seventh, describes the peace and security of the city of God, surrounded by furious enemies, but rejoicing in the eternal presence. The parallel phrases here follow the same rule as in the first part. The concluding phrase is the stronger, the more emphatic. The seventh verse gives the refrain or chorus of the anthem. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The last part, verses 8th to 10th, describes in a very vivid and concrete way the deliverance of the people that have trusted in the Eternal. It begins with a couplet, like those which have gone before, Then follow two stanzas of triple thought rhymes, in which the thought is stated and intensified with each repetition. He maketh wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heavens. I will be exalted in the earth. The anthem ends with a repetition of the refrain. A careful study of the psalms, even in English, will enable the thoughtful reader to derive new pleasure from them by tracing the many modes and manners in which this poetic form of thought rhyme is used to bind the composition together, and to give balance and harmony to the poem. Another element of poetic form can be discerned in the psalms, not directly in the English version, but by its effects. I mean the curious artifice of alphabetical arrangement. It was a favorite practice among the Hebrew poets to begin their verses with the successive letters of the alphabet, or sometimes to vary the device by making every verse in a strophe begin with one letter, and every verse in the next strophe with the following letter, and so on to the end. The 25th and the 37th psalms were written by the first of these rules. The 119th psalm follows the second plan. Of course, the alphabetic artifice disappears entirely in the English translation, but its effects remain. The psalms written in this manner usually have but a single theme, which is repeated over and over again, in different words and with new illustrations. They are kaleidoscopic. The material does not change, but it is turned this way and that way, and shows itself in new shapes and arrangements. These alphabetic psalms are characterized by poverty of action and richness of expression. 2. Milton has already reminded us that the psalms belong to the second of the three orders into which the Greeks, with clear discernment, divided all poetry, the epic, the lyric, and the dramatic. The psalms are rightly called lyrics because they are chiefly concerned with the immediate and imaginative expression of real feeling. It is the personal and emotional note that predominates. They are inward, confessional, intense, outpourings of the quickened spirit, self-revelations of the heart it is for this reason that we should never separate them in our thought from the actual human life out of which they sprung we must feel the warm pulse of humanity in them in order to comprehend their meaning and their immortal worth so far as we can connect them with the actual experience of men this will help us to appreciate their reality and power the effort to do this will make plain to us some other things which it is important to remember we shall see at once that the book does not come from a single writer but from many authors and ages it represents the heart of man in communion with god through a thousand years of history from moses to nehemiah perhaps even to the time of the maccabean revival it is therefore something very much larger and better than an individual book it is the golden treasury of lyrics gathered from the life of the hebrew people the hymn-book of the jews And this gives to it a singular and precious quality of brotherhood the fault or at least the danger of modern lyrical poetry is that it is too solitary and separate in its tone it tends towards exclusiveness over refinement morbid sentiment many christian hymns suffer from this defect but the psalms breathe a spirit of human fellowship even when they are most intensely personal the poet rejoices or mourns in solitude it may be, but he is not alone in spirit. He is one of the people. He is conscious always of the ties that bind him to his brother-men. Compare the intense selfishness of the modern hymn. I can but perish if I go. I am resolved to try. For if I stay away, I know I shall forever die. With the generous penitence of the 51st Psalm, Then I will teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. It is important to observe that there are several different kinds of lyrics among the psalms. Some of them are simple and natural outpourings of a single feeling, like a shepherd's song about his shepherd, the incomparable twenty-third psalm. This little poem is a perfect melody. It would be impossible to express a pure, unmixed emotion, the feeling of joy in the divine goodness, more simply, with a more penetrating lyrical charm. The Valley of the Death Shadow, the enemies in whose presence the table has spread but are dimly suggested in the background the atmosphere of the psalm is clear and bright the singing shepherd walks in light the whole world is the house of the lord and life is altogether gladness how different is the tone the quality of the one hundred and nineteenth psalm it is not a melody but a harmony not a song but an ode The Ode has been defined as a strain of exalted and enthusiastical lyrical verse, directed to a fixed purpose and dealing progressively with one dignified theme. This definition precisely fits the 119th Psalm. Its theme is the Eternal Word. Every verse in the poem, except one, contains some name or description of the law, commandments, testimonies, precepts, statutes, or judgments of Jehovah its enthusiasm for the divine righteousness never fails from beginning to end its fixed purpose is to kindle in other hearts the flame of devotion to the one holy law it closes with a touch of magnificent pathos a confession of personal failure and an assertion of spiritual loyalty i have gone astray like a lost sheep seek thy servant for i do not forget thy commandments the fifteenth psalm i should call a short didactic lyric its title is the good citizen it begins with a question lord who shall abide in thy tabernacle and who shall dwell on thy holy hill this question is answered by the description of a man whose character corresponds to the law of god first there is a positive sketch in three broad lines he that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart then comes a negative characterization in a finely touched triplet He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. This is followed by a couplet containing a strong contrast. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord. Then the description goes back to the negative style again, and three more touches are added to the picture. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money, to usury nor taketh reward against the innocent. The poem closes with a single vigorous line, summing up the character of the good citizen and answering the question of the first verse with a new emphasis of security and permanence. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. The 78th, 105th, and 106th Psalms are lyrical ballads. They tell the story of Israel in Egypt, and in the wilderness, and in Canaan with swift, stirring phrases, and with splendid flashes of imagery. Take this passage from the 78th Psalm as an example. He clave the rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rocks, and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against him, provoking the Most High in the wilderness. They tempted God in their hearts, asking meat for their lust yea they spake against god they said can god furnish a table in the wilderness behold he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed can he give bread also can he provide flesh for his people therefore the lord heard and was wroth so a fire was kindled against jacob and anger also came up against israel because they believed not in god and trusted not in his salvation Though he commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven man did eat angels food he sent them meat to the full he caused an east wind to blow in the heaven and by his power he brought in the south wind he rained flesh also upon them as dust and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea and he let it fall in the midst of their camp round about their habitations so they did eat and were filled for he gave them their own desire they were not estranged from their lust but while the meat was yet in their mouths the wrath of god came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of israel the forty-fifth psalm is a marriage ode the hebrew title calls it a love song it bears all the marks of having been composed for some royal wedding feast in jerusalem there are many nature lyrics among the psalms the twenty-ninth is notable for its rugged realism it is a song of thunder the voice of the lord breaketh the cedars yea the lord breaketh the cedars of lebanon he maketh them also to skip like a calf lebanon and syrian like a young unicorn the one hundred and fourth on the contrary is full of calm sublimity and meditative grandeur O lord my god thou art very great thou art clothed with honor and majesty who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain. The 19th is famous for its splendid comparison between the starry heavens and the moral law. I think that we may find also some dramatic lyrics among the Psalms, poems composed to express the feelings of a historic person, like David or Solomon, in certain well-known and striking experiences of his life. That the later writer should thus embody and express the truth dramatically through the personality of some great hero of the past involves no falsehood. It is a mode of utterance which has been common to the literature of all lands and of all ages. Such a method of composition would certainly be no hindrance to the spirit of inspiration. The thirty-first psalm, for instance, is ascribed by the title to David, but there is strong reason in the phraseology and in the spirit of the poem to believe that it was written by the prophet Jeremiah three it is not to be supposed that our reverence for the psalms in their moral and religious aspects will make us put them all on the same level poetically there is a difference among the books of the new testament in regard to the purity and dignity of the greek in which they are written there is a difference among st paul's epistles in regard to the clearness and force of their style there is a difference even among the chapters of the same epistle in regard to the beauty of thought and language in the first epistle to the corinthians the thirteenth chapter is poetic the fourteenth is prosaic, why should there not be a difference in poetic quality among the psalms? There is a difference. The honest reader will recognize it. It will be no harm to him if he should have his favorites among the poems which have been gathered for many centuries into this great collection. There are some, like the twenty-seventh, the forty-second, the forty-sixth, the fifty-first, the sixty-third, the ninety-first, the ninety-sixth, the one-hundred-and-third, the 107th, the 139th, which rank with the noblest poetic literature of the world. Others move on a lower level, and show the traces of effort and constraint. There are also manifest alterations and interpolations, which are not always improvements. Dr. Perone, who is one of the wisest and most conservative of modern commentators, says, Many of the Psalms have not come down to us in their original form, and refers to the alterations which the seventieth makes in the fortieth and the fifty-third in the fourteenth the last two verses of the fifty-first were evidently added by a later hand the whole book in its present form shows the marks of its compilation and use as the hymn-book of the jewish people not only in the titles but also in the text we can discern the work of the compiler critic and adapter sometimes wise but occasionally otherwise four the most essential thing in the appreciation of the poetry in the psalms is the recognition of the three great spiritual qualities which distinguish them the first of these is the deep and genuine love of nature the psalmists delight in the vision of the world and their joy quickens their sense to read both the larger hieroglyphics of glory written in the stars and the delicate tracings of transient beauty on leaf and flower to hear both the mighty roaring of the sea and the soft sweet laughter of the rustling cornfields but in all these they see the handwriting and hear the voice of god it is his presence that makes the world sublime and beautiful the direct piercing elevating sense of his presence simplifies enlarges and ennobles their style and makes it different from other nature poetry they never lose themselves as Theocritus and Wordsworth and Shelley and Tennyson sometimes do in the contemplation and description of natural beauty. They see it, but they always see beyond it. Compare, for example, a modern versified translation with the psalm itself. The spacious firmament on high, with all the blue ethereal sky, and spangled heavens, a shining frame, their great original proclaim. Addison's descriptive epithets betray a conscious effort to make a splendid picture. But the psalmist felt no need of this. A larger impulse lifted him at once to the grand style. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The second quality of the poetry in the psalms is their passionate sense of the beauty of holiness. Keats was undoubtedly right in his suggestion that the poet must always see truth in the form of beauty otherwise he may be a philosopher, or a critic, or a moralist, but he is not a true poet. But we must go on from this standpoint to the Platonic doctrine that the highest form of beauty is spiritual and ethical. The poet must also see beauty in the light of truth. It is the harmony of the soul with the eternal music of the good. And the highest poets are those who, like the psalmists, are most ardently enamored of righteousness This fills their songs with sweetness and fire incomparable and immortal. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring for ever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The third quality of the poetry of the Psalms is their intense joy in God. No lover ever poured out the longings of his heart toward his mistress more eagerly than the psalmist voices his desire and thirst for God. No conqueror ever sang of victory more exultantly than the psalmist rejoices in the Lord, who is his light and his salvation, the strength of his life and his portion forever. After all, the true mission of poetry is to increase joy. It must, indeed, be sensitive to sorrow and acquainted with grief but it has wings given to it in order that it may bear us up into the air of gladness. There is no perfect joy without love. Therefore, love poetry is the best. But the highest of all love poetry is that which celebrates with the Psalms that love which is and was my father and my brother and my God. End of chapter 2